Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. And welcome to another edition of The Nuclear View. No, don't check your dials. This is not Adam Lowther with a new voice. This is Curtis McGiffin hosting, sitting in the big chair for Adam Lowther, who is on assignment this week, uh, trying to do things and change the world. Uh, but these, this time he's not on vacation, uh, which I never get one uh, because uh, the president of NIDS, uh, Jim Petrosky, is just uh, he is just one mean guy who keeps driving us and driving us uh, as we move forward. Uh, hey, welcome and to decide that Curtis, you need to do something to get a vacation. <laughs> That's from right. Something, there we go. So. so today with us, we've got Jim Petrosky and we've got one of our senior fellows, Kirk Fancher. Welcome Kirk to the uh, episode. Hey, thanks guys. It's good to be back. It's good to have you. So this is our Thanksgiving episode. Uh, our listeners uh, will be enjoying this uh, particular episode over the holiday weekend. Uh, so we're going to have a little bit of a different episode here. We're going to talk about a short article here in the first half. And then in the second half, as a preview to the listeners, we are going to talk about the things that uh, the, the nuclear deterrence things we are most thankful for. So we'll stay in the spirit of the uh, of the event as we move forward. So uh, let's move. And we're going to talk today about an article that was uh, released uh, at the time uh, that you're listening to this about a week ago uh, from a Newsweek magazine by, uh, by the author Alex Phillips. And the article is titled Nuclear Attack. Worst case scenario would see 90 percent of Americans wiped out. Now, this is a horrifying uh, uh, title uh, to a a rather interesting, dare I say, uh, fully confused article uh, that is really designed, I think, to get Americans uh, scared and outraged. Uh, and when you dig into this thing, it's really quite surprising. So we're going to take a quick uh, uh, time here to review this. Uh, this piece here, and it basically comes out, to, it's based on a study that was recently published by a Scientific American uh, that sort of does some analysis that says that uh, if all of the nuclear uh, ICBM sites that are all in the process of being uh, modernized with the new Sentinel system, uh, if they were all attacked with uh, one kiloton weapons, um, that they would, uh, the damage that they would be producing would uh, once all the irra- radiation goes out, that it would kill uh, about 300 million Americans. There's a lot of things wrong with this article, and we're going to kind of dig into this. But I wanted to uh, kind of start you off with that. Let's go to you, Jim, to kind of give us your thought here as the as the engineer. Is uh, what do you think about this? Is a is a single kiloton weapon going to take out an ICBM silo? To your best guess, and is that going to produce enough radiation yield and fallout that we'll see 300 million Americans be killed? Oh, Curtis, thank you. Um, you know, I'm the resident scientist. And by the way, Kirk, thank you again for joining us. We, it's always a pleasure to have you on on our show, and uh, and I enjoy really enjoy working with you. So to answer the answer to question, look at this. Uh, look at this realistically. Again, I'm a scientist, so I haven't done the calculations on this. I haven't pinpointed all of our missile silos. 
on on the ground. Uh, I could probably ask some Chinese spy balloon uh, information <laughs> to get that. Uh, they haven't shared that with me yet, um, but that could have been maybe oh, what they were. I thinking think we about should FOIA that. For this article. We could FOIA that data. Yeah, I, <laughs> I was wondering about that, but but uh, in all seriousness, I haven't I haven't tracked that. I I don't know where they exactly are. Uh, so let me let me first start out by saying, as a scientist, it's always good to look at the broad side. What if everything gets hit? What if nothing gets hit? Okay, and just like I talk about, you know, how many nuclear weapons do we need? Well, somewhere between zero and infinity is a good start, and then we can start backtracking on that. In the same case, or excuse me, I'm, I said zero and infinity, one and infinity, <laughs> because you need at least one to deter at least something. But anyway, from a from the standpoint of this article, um, it's interesting to look at all the potential sites and then say, okay, if these are ground detonations, one kiloton apiece, all of the sites get hit. Suddenly, this is something to go running to the hills for because a calculation has shown that in some case, I'm not going to badmouth the Princeton people. I'll believe they did some sort of calculation. They've looked at some radioactive fallout. They've done some measurements and some calculations and looked at it and said, this is what's going to happen. But let's put a realistic view on this. And first of all, when we talk about Sentinel, Sentinel's just replacing the holes in the ground that are already there. So is there anything new here? I mean, what if the ones before Sentinel were built were all attacked at the same time? What if all the cities or all the Starbucks were all attacked at one time. I mean, we can play this game out. There's no realistic scenario there in which this happens. The number two piece regarding Sentinel is as we modernize, we are looking at a system that is more survivable, that is more, uh, more capable. Uh, and thus, you know, looking at something that may be able to respond more easily and be more protected means that there's less of a chance that someone's going to try to take them out, so to speak, with all these one kiloton weapons. So like you, Curtis, I, I see this article is really just driving at something that is not the point of the article, the calculation. So the science part to me is off the table. It, it, this is a non sequitur, a non-making you know, non sense argument. And that's the problem I have with the entire article. As I said, we could do the same thing. In fact, if you want me to, uh, someone wants to commission me to, I will gladly tell you if someone targeted every Starbucks in the United States with a nuclear weapon, how many people could potentially die? And we could all say, get rid of Starbucks. <laughs> I, I, I don't understand. I don't, just don't understand the purpose of this when you look at it from that standpoint. Well, the, the purpose is I'll clearly political on this before I hand it over to Kirk. But uh, I think that if you if you applied this science to every Starbucks, um, I think it would have a higher death rate because there's clearly more Starbucks than there are nuclear missile silos in America. Would you agree with that? So well, so I'm going to, I'm going to back, I'm going to, I'm going to say the opposite because I've looked at those Starbucks and all those cars that are sitting there idling all morning long to get their coffee. They're contributing global warming, which is an existential threat to us. And we should worry about that. So maybe those Starbucks would, we, so we'd be we'll better off without with, them. With, we can offset it with a nuclear winter. That, there you go. Well, there you go. Well, that's one wow. way to solve. Boy, we've really gone somewhere for Thanksgiving, but we said we'd have it a little lighter. That's right. And today well, is going to be a little bit lighter. Well, clearly nuclear <laughs> uh, nuclear winter is an offset to global warming. But let's go over to Kirk. And uh, what are your thoughts on this piece? Well, the first thing is, you know, spending having spent too many years in the Pentagon, um, 
And, I feel uh, sorry for you, Kirk. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it explains a lot. Um, anyways, <laughs> so, you know, after reading this and thinking through it, I dug out my, you know, my bi- little Bible here from Johns Hopkins on assessing the risk of nuclear war. Uh, great book. Um, it's a compilation of some of their papers um, talking about the calculations that you were, Jim. Uh, they've got a, a great paper that's included as chapter six in here. Uh, about page 157, Physical Consequences of Nuclear Weapons Use. And it's even got a picture of the old circular slide rule um, that you can you That's can right. calculate the... Jim's got a real the, life. ...the damage and, and everything of, of a particular <laughs> weapon. Right. So, the, I mean, the bottom line, uh, uh, I think there's two points here. You know, one is what I'll call the red herring, which is what we've been talking about so far. All right, which is... We're talking about a total nuclear exchange if they're going after our missile fields. And one of the reasons we have the missile fields in the homeland is to um, raise that level of, of threshold of pain uh, because, you know, they're looking at the same damage on their side. <laughs> All right. Um, so so there's, there's that piece of it and understanding the role of the ICBM as a uh, warhead sponge. Um, which they, you know, really may not even have enough warheads to go after. Um, Or if they do, they have to bring them out of a less ready status to a more ready status. And that starts to to give us warnings and indications so we can get the subs out, we can get get the bombers off and everything like that. But I don't think the nuclear war fighting, nuclear deterrence piece of the the article is really where 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 the meat is. Um, I looked at the 1.3 trillion dollar price tag that they put on Sentinel, and I wore my School of Management sweatshirt <laughs> um, in uh, in uh, you know dedicated to that, and said this is about money. This is about money in the budget, and this article uh, throws out a horrific uh, headline, and like all articles. You know, there's there's somebody who writes the article and then there's a headline editor that puts a, a headline on it that may or may not relate to the article, but it's designed to get your attention. But uh, for me, the deal is we can save one point three trillion dollars by just not having ICBMs. Um, and then now, how do I make an argument in favor of that? And I'll come up with a silly argument that nobody who knows anything about the field will take seriously. Uh, but it'll horrify a bunch of people who read Newsweek, um, and we can we can galvanize uh, around the idea that um, we shouldn't uh, spend a lot of money on something that just makes us unsafe. Um, well, uh, and I don't have to prove any of that. <laughs> let me uh, just so let me statement. build on that, Kirk, because I think uh, you know obviously when when you know they they they've at least with us you know that their mission is successful. We're talking about their silly article. Um, but um, uh, but I also feel like it's it's incumbent upon us to sort of address the silliness of this article so that people aren't, um, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, incorrectly outraged. Um, so let's talk about it. So one point five trillion dollars for the for the 400 uh, of these missiles to be replaced. Well, first of all, one point five trillion is the number for the entire modification, right? And modernization. The ICBMs are only about thirteen percent of that one point five billion dollars. So there's 
there's the first fact that needs to just go away uh, that that's wrong in this in this thing. And what this thing doesn't address is, I guess it maybe it assumes this article assumes that if the missile silos aren't there, that those that they, that therefore would not be a nuclear attack on the United States, which is ridiculous, right? So if all of those missiles aren't falling on those silos, then they're falling on American cities. All right, and so having these the missiles. Uh, deployed in the upper Midwest, uh, whether they're there or not, doesn't change the fact that there is another country that is, it's some frame of mind of conflict with us that they are attacking us. And this is the one benefit. And I think, again, Kirk, you pointed this out. I want to foot stomp it here, is that um, when you attack an ICBM in the middle of the, of the Midwestern United States, you are in fact attacking American soil. There is no question, right, about what is happening by whom against whom, right? So, uh, you know, bombers can crash or submarines can be lost at sea and we can kind of make excuses and uh, de-escalate potential crises. There is no de-escalating an attack on the ICBM missile fields, period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unequivocal warning. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Jim. Well, there, there's another piece here too, and that is that you can say we're spending 1.5 trillion or 13% of 1.5 trillion. I don't do math in public, but I could figure that one out. It's a lot less, but uh, say about 10%. So it's what 0.15 trillion. So what 150 billion. So the point is, if you can argue two pieces here, if our missile fields deter the attack. If you leave that in the equation, say they could deter the attack, then no Americans die of any radiation. If we get rid of them and we're attacked, your argument of worst case here is the worst case. So what option do you want? Do you want the worst case or a possible worst case if you want to make an argument for deterrence, which, by the way, has worked historically. And so when you do that with the disarmament, you actually find out that this is money well spent because mm-hmm. at least it gives me an option of not being destroyed in a nuclear attack because it deters our enemy. Right. I'm going to go back to business school for uh, for a second here and, and risk math in public. Uh-oh, here okay. we go. <laughs> and, well, I did it, and I'm not sure I was right. You know, and as we did, you know, as you, if, as you look at things as a business case, you know, in the in the commercial world or in any world, one you know one of the things we we learned was game theory. And but the bottom line is is sort of the, it's the probability tree, right? So mm-hmm. there's you have you have the magnitude of what happens and the probability that it will happen, and you've got various outcomes. Each have a different probability. Each have a different magnitude, and you can come to an expected value. All right. Well, the purpose, yes, the magnitude of, of uh, you know, they, they call it 1,200 warheads, 1KT warheads, which, you know, just for our audience is about one-tenth the size of the Hiroshima bomb. Right. Okay. They're small. So they call for 1,200 warheads out there uh, going off and throwing dirt in the air that's not good for you. Um, and... Uh, then there's the probability that that happens. Well, the fact that they have to they have to attack 400 dimpies, and they're hardened by way mm-hmm. faith in being able to do that and achieve it and knock the missile out. 
the probability of that happening versus the gain they get for it um, is what affects their decision calculus. So, you know, what has to happen for them to attempt the worst case? And, you know, I'll, I'm going to go back to the Bible here. And it talks about um, a movie that I watched from my, my room at undergraduate pilot training uh, the day after, which basically is a movie about this scenario, right? And interestingly, the film was released uh, internationally and was even so shown on Soviet television. And uh, it's, it says in here, you know, it states that um, it was widely distributed in the United States and so depressed President Reagan that it affirmed his belief in the importance of a strong deterrent to prevent war. Mm -hmm. So seeing how horrific this would be if it actually happened, President Reagan said, we've got to make sure this can never happen. And the only way we can do that is to make it unimaginable that somebody could think they could do this. And that's the exact opposite of the argument that they're trying to make. And we could get into a whole argument about Minuteman has to be modernized or, you know, so they're really basically saying, you know, it was the same in New Start and the NPR. The ICBMs were the bill payer. All right. We lost a squadron of ICBMs um, because everybody wants to rely on the submarines and believes that they'll be invulnerable forever. Um, and we only ever want to think of being a second in a second strike position. Out of sight, out of mind, submarines make everybody feel good. And if we can save a bunch of money, um, let's go ahead and do that. Uh, war should be horrible. Nuclear war should be the greatest horror there is so that we never imagine fighting it. And, you know, what I see as being a real problem today is that we are imagining fighting it because the Chinese and the Russians have modernized their their battlefield nuclear weapons is what I like to call them. And they're talking about using those weapons as part of um, an integrated war fighting con ops. And that view of nuclear weapons as we get smaller and get more precise and everything, um, people are falling into the trap of, yeah, we could use two or three of these things in a fight. Yeah, I, w I would say another thing that, uh, and I, I agree with that from a planner standpoint and, uh, you know, military standpoint, but I'll go back from an American public standpoint. Uh, we have not looked at the nuclear warfare in such a horrific way as well and say, and, you know, and, and as I think as a world, we don't look at that. We look at it almost as a video game that you, you know, you play it and you lay it out. I recall as well when the day after came out and first of all, I was just so frightened by uh, John Lithgow's uh, a voice in the, in the underground uh, radio station. But in all seriousness, it, it did scare the heck out of me. It made me say, I don't want to ever have to live through that. Um, I also felt the, the same with uh, whatever that Wolverine thing was when the Cubans attacked the West. I thought uh, the Red same Dawn. way. <laughs> Red Dawn. I thought the same thing there. It scared the heck out of me to the point where I said, I don't want this, but it's not that I want nuclear war. I want us to prevent it. That's right. And the way you prevent it 
is to make the, uh, the, I'll use Curtis's words because they're the right words, to make the adversary more fearful, there you go, Kirk, <laughs> more fearful of, um, of what will happen if they begin it. For or our listeners, I've put on my Dr. Strangelove hat. Uh, so, you know. well, I, I, and I can, I can tell you unequivocally, I never found a gold coin in the survival kit on a B-52 ejection seat. Um, <laughs> but the life support beer cooler was always well stocked. Okay. So uh, anyways, I'm sorry for that distraction. But did you find the prophylactics? Nope. We're supposed to make it lighter. It's Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Curtis. Go ahead with your comment. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, anyway, yeah. uh, I, I just want to wrap things up here because um, I did the research. I want to say this on the air. <laughs> Uh, so the EPA estimates that 21,000 Americans die each year from radon gas, right? This is radon gas is, is what, Jim? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, it's radon from the decay of actinides un- under the earth that slowly seep through the ground. By the it's way, your right? house is very well. Yeah. So it's radon. Well, it's radon, radon, okay, coming out of the ground. And it, of course, you know, enters into your lungs hits you with little alpha particles and can cause, you know, lung cancer. By the way, it's created naturally from the decay of, you know, primordial, you know, actinides as they slowly decay over time. And the more insulated your house is, the more chance that happening. So you should open your windows and doors in the wintertime to make sure that that radon does not collect in your house. Right. I think the off-gassing from uh, the carpets and the, and, and the, uh, and, and, you know, and all the plastic in my house is probably going to kill me before the it's radon. It's possible. <laughs> uh, but this is the this is uranium uh, type of stuff. So it, it is interesting to note that, you know, we've if you if you calculate this over 40 years, it's over 800,000 people. So uh, there's there's a lot of um, ways that that uh, nukes can affect you. One of the things that I'll, I'll go back and, you know, I didn't I wasn't as smart as Jim, so I didn't become a nuclear engineer. I became a pilot, uh, but I started out as a nuclear engineer. Um, and I, you know, had the, my advisor actually did the blast measurements um, for the, the shot at Los Alamos or the, uh, the test. Um, but when we started uh, in our survey of nuclear engineering and we're around the reactor, you know, we had our, our little badge to measure our exposure and they made it, and we made a swap out those badges and wear another badge when we were around campus on the University of Wisconsin. And in the end, we found out that we we got about ten times the the radiation exposure outside mm-hmm. walking around campus as we did working next to the re, a nuclear reactor. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, to your point, Jim, lots of lots of granite <laughs> and marble. Granite um, is really bad uh, in in college campuses, especially in the Midwest. Are my kitchen countertops they killing are. me? Okay. No, let's not let's not go. A little radiation, <laughs> a lot of radiation. It's not all killing you. Let's not bring this down to stuff. Oh, that's right. It's Thanksgiving. Podcast. So cut Remember? your turkeys. Don't cut your turkeys on the granite countertops. We can be thankful that the uh <laughs> the radiation is causing us to evolve and your children will be smarter than any oh, okay, of us. Okay, well let's hope so. Uh as a result. All right. So Kirk, you brought us into our next Kirk, segment you've been here. Watching too many sci-fi movies. <laughs> We're gonna move into our next segment here, which is what are we most thankful for? Uh considering, you know, the the genre in which we operate in. Um so uh I'm gonna start uh with Jim. 
uh, Jim, uh, what are you uh, most thankful for as we're rolling? You you don't want to go first. You want someone else to go first, or are you still trying to figure it out? No, that's so all right. I'll, I'll set a different for. stage than you were expecting, Curtis. It certainly is. So I was thinking about this. Curtis contacted me today and said, we need to do the Thanksgiving broadcast and let's talk about Thanksgiving. So I was thinking about this. You know, I was going to say, you know, since you know, I was going to be thankful today that Adam isn't on this podcast <laughs> because, you know, because I always pick on Adam. But I thought, you know, that would be a little edgy. And then, you know, I was going to be a little more corny and say, you know, I'm thankful for the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, who is making people aware that's, you know, as the president, you would expect that. But I truly say I am thankful. And I say this last uh, last weekend was Veterans Day. I am thankful. And I've become more more thankful as I've interacted more with people along the periphery outside of my normal zone of influence of all the people in our country that are part of this deterrence work and give their best every day studying, understanding, and preserving our peace. I am extremely thankful for that because last weekend, instead of being in a war zone or fighting underground or hiding from a radiation event, I sat outside with my family and played games under the starlight. I am extremely thankful for this country and the way we're able to do that freely. There you go. Wow. That's a great one. That is, that is a great one. So since you're talking about the people, so let's go to you, Kirk. What, uh, what are you most thankful for when we're thinking about this? Well, I mean, I'm, there's so many things to be thankful. I mean, about in this country, I grew up poor and, had more opportunities than a lot of people. But I look back fondly on actually um, the Thanksgivings I spent on alert with the other B-52 crew dogs um, or that we we did in, you know, we grilled a turkey and it was, I think, probably minus 20 um, on a Weber grill in Minot, North Dakota uh, one year. Um, and, you know, the, the camaraderie there, um I've spent Thanksgiving in Korea. I've spent Thanksgiving, you know, uh, in Afghanistan. Oh, no, actually, different holidays in Afghanistan. I'm, I managed to miss that one. But, I'm, you know, I'm thankful for all the people who stand the watch, um, who did so, you know, before me and have done so after. Um, I'm thankful for having had the opportunity um, uh, to contribute a little bit to keeping, you know, my loved ones safe. Um, and other people uh, being able to uh, enjoy their holidays, knowing that, um, you know, the chances of us experiencing something like October 7th or 9-11 or, or the Newsweek article are minimal because of the people who do stand the watch and because we have a credible deterrent that makes somebody think twice about doing harm to our people. Oh, I couldn't agree with that more. Uh, so well done. You talk, thank, thank the people. And, and Jim was smart enough to actually get three thankful things instead of the one. Uh, so he's he's clever, uh, much more clever than I. Um, I you know, I'm going to be just a little bit more, I think, uh, uh, at the 35,000 foot level here. And because uh, uh, I don't want to be thankful for the same things you're thankful for, because those are great things to be thankful for. I want to say that I'm thankful for um, the peace that our nuclear deterrence has brought not only to the United States, but to the world uh, since 1945. Um, it's not been an easy time 
you know, 40 plus years of Cold War, 30 plus years of post-Cold War, and now we're looking into a new era that may well be more dangerous than the previous two eras uh, combined. And I think the theory of deterrence uh, is going to be tested more in the future than it ever has been in the past. And so I'm thankful for the ideas that our parents and grandparents sort of evolved into what we call modern nuclear deterrence theory today. I'm thankful for our grandparents and parents who were able to build great stuff that we still live with today. I'll use an example. Those men and women who designed and built missile silos at the rate of two per day in the 1960s um, and to, to be able to put a thousand missiles on, in the ground in within a very short time span, uh, we would never be able to do that today. But we could do it then. And the ingenuity. And they did it with a shovel and walked that's up right. two miles. Steam shovels. <laughs> uphill and, uh, in the snow to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and rail cars and, and uh, no, you know, laser designators, no, no. Uh, computer-assisted uh, design systems uh, and all of these things. Uh, and, uh, and funny, nobody really worried about, you know, uh, whether or not, you know, some small newt was going to be, you know, endangered by the uh, by the new silos. So I would, uh, I'm thankful for those things because all of what we've done in the past has empowered us in the present and the future to continue the peace that I think we're going to enjoy as long as we understand and adhere to the theory. So that's what I'm most thankful for. Hey, Curtis, if I can chime in a little. Go ahead. One one last thing on, on what you just said there, because, you know, the, this holiday is a holiday where um, uh, traditionally what we've been taught, you know, this, the settlers got through a rough winter. They survived they had a, they got a harvest in their second year and they were thankful that they were going to have enough food to get through um you know through the next winter you touched on the peace we've enjoyed since world war 2 because deterrence has worked um and that peace has enabled a lot of things to happen in the world you know when 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 we talk about just prior to world war 2 75% of the people were abject lived in abject poverty where they didn't have something to be thankful for at Thanksgiving. And now that number is less than 10% worldwide. So the peace and stability that we've enjoyed over these last 50 some years have, has elevated the, the standard of living and the prosperity of the entire globe, not just America, not just our families, um, but it wouldn't have been possible in the cycle of, you know, every other generation, there's a world war that had come prior um, to World War II and the establishment of this this national order or international order based on deterrence. Right. Would, we, would you call that colla- collateral benefits? We always hear collateral damage. I think this is a collateral um, benefit. What you just described is a collateral benefit of mm-hmm. nuclear deterrence, the ability to have and maintain this world order with a uh, an energetic uh, ec- economic uh, capacity globally has lifted tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions out of poverty. 
um, and uh, and of course saved all of those lives that would have otherwise been lost in war. So I think that is uh, tremendous. So thank you, Jim. Any last comments before we wrap up? No, aside from uh, letting our audience know that we are extremely thankful for them. Hey, that's a good obviously. one too. And um, and I've, I I got four in now. Um, but seriously, I, I'm very thank uh, you know I, I want to thank them and I wish them a very very uh, a very very uh, enjoyable, uh, relaxing, but also maybe a thought provoking Thanksgiving where they have time to share in their thoughts and and ideas with their family and friends. And uh, we look forward to getting back with you after Thanksgiving uh, to bring you some more of our uh, our podcasts and hopefully inform you. Uh, as things go forward. So back to you, Curtis, to close us out. Well, thank you, Jim. That's a great way to wrap us up. I do want to thank our listeners. We are most thankful for our listeners and supporters here at National Institute for Deterrence Studies, uh, where with each podcast, we always want to remind you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.